0: Mark chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. The topic in these verses, Pontius Pilate is pressured into condemning Jesus to be crucified. The title of our message, Pilate Error. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning thus far. It's so great, Lord, to come together with other believers and sing praises to you. You are worthy to be praised, and we have praised you. Knit our hearts together, Lord, in in a chorus of praise. And now our hearts are open and ready for you to discern between the soul and the spirit. And to teach us about Jesus. To let us see him a little bit more clearly as we walk with him and wait for him. Open our minds to the scriptures here, Lord. uh, And make it applicable to right where we live. We thank you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. So pilot error is a term used to describe a decision or action or an inaction of a pilot or crew of an aircraft that is determined to be a cause or a contributing factor in an accident or an incident. Pardon the bad pun, but I want to hijack that term and apply it to Pontius Pilate. He is forever associated with his grave error. Knowing that Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing, Pilate caved to the crowd and condemned the sinless Son of God, first to a vicious scourging and then to death by crucifixion. Mark's account of Pilate emphasizes a title that's given to Jesus, King of the Jews. It occurs here for the first time in his gospel, but it does so three times in verses 1 through 15, and a total of six times in this chapter. So it's a significant phrase. Pilate marveled at the dignity of the king, but he caved to the din of the crowd causes me to ask these two questions of ourselves. Number one, do you marvel at the dignity of your king? And number two, do you cave at the din of the crowd? Let's take first of all a look at verses one through five at the dignity of Jesus Christ, our king. Now, Jesus certainly did not look like much of a king standing before Pilate. After his early morning arrest in Gethsemane, Jesus was assaulted by one of the officers of Annas, the former high priest. Then being tried by Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, and the current high priest, Jesus had been blindfolded and then struck repeatedly by members of the Sanhedrin and their officers. He must have been bruised and bloodied by that a mistreatment. We should also take into consideration that Jesus was rather common looking. The Bible never gives any physical description of him. The closest thing we get to a description is in Isaiah 53 verse 2 where we read, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah adds that Jesus would grow up like a plant out of dry ground with no form of kingly majesty. Several times in his ministry, he was able to slip away into a crowd without being noticed. Apparently, he didn't glow or have any kind of a buzzing around him. They said, there he is, I see him. He was very nondescript. He didn't stand out. His appearance was just like that of any other ordinary Jewish man. His appearance was about to change. We'll see this in subsequent weeks. After Pilate was through with Jesus, he would barely look human. Isaiah predicted this too, saying, this is Isaiah 52, verse 14, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He may not look like the king of Jews, but after observing Jesus through his ordeals, Pilate would be described as marveling at him. Pilate would be struck with a sense of wonder at the dignity of Jesus. And so let's get into it in verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Mark is always very concise, and he omits many details. Since his words were inspired, since they were God-breathed, we want to be careful to follow Mark's train of thought without getting too distracted by historical details from the other Gospels that he does not include. It's important we know the whole story, And that we realize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what they tell us is absolutely true historically. Nevertheless, each of them edits the details so that God the Holy Spirit can apply the text to our hearts. In other words, they're not writing a history even though the history they write is accurate. They're writing so that our hearts can be affected by the Holy Spirit's ministry. Each gospel tells the story in a way that is designed to do what only the Bible can do, to discern between your soul and your spirit, to bring you spiritual life and insight for living it. The chapter starts with the word immediately. The Jewish authorities couldn't wait to be rid of Jesus. They were the first in line at Pilate's place. Now it seems as though our political leaders today can't wait to be rid of Jesus. There's no prayer in schools. There's no posting of the Ten Commandments in government buildings. No nativities on public land. Drop the word God from the pledge and the words in God we trust from our money. No invocations at city council meetings. They think they have Jesus bound by political correctness. He remains king no matter the efforts of the ungodly to dethrone him. And I say if there's no prayer in public schools, pray anyway. Right. If there's uh, no prayer in public buildings, bow in prayer before the meeting starts. I mean, be a revolutionary. Pilate governed the areas of Judea, Samaria, and the area south as far as the Dead Sea to Gaza. As prefect, he had absolute authority over the non-Roman citizens of his province. He was responsible to the Roman governor who lived in Syria to the north. Uh, Romans had a complicated political system that I don't understand. It's similar to every other political system in the world except ours. Have you ever tried to figure out what's going on in the British Parliament? Or these countries like Israel, which I mean we respect Israel, but uh, all of a sudden they'll just completely dissolve the government and rebuild it. I don't know what's going on. Uh, God bless America. Anyway... The Sanhedrin must involve Pilate because as a subjected people, they no longer had the power of capital punishment. If Jesus was going to be executed, it would have to be by Rome. As Christians in America, we sometimes feel like a subjected people having what we deem our rights taken away. I suggest true power, spiritual power rests with us and that's something that no one can take. I believe we should do all we can, participating in the political arena, to stand for righteousness. We should vote, we should sign the petitions, call your elected officials. It makes a difference in a free society. But do not ever come to depend upon those things. They are no substitute for the power of the gospel to transform lives and through those lives to transform society. We are losing on many fronts legally the long-term solution remains the gospel it remains getting people saved evangelism is not an afterthought more saved individuals means more political impact for righteousness so whatever you do don't leave the gospel behind it is our priority so verse 2 then Pilate asked him are you the king of the Jews and he answered and said to him, It is as you say. The Sanhedrin had pronounced Jesus guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be their Messiah and for claiming to be equal with God. Pilate, representing Rome, couldn't care less about a charge of religious blasphemy. So, what did they tell him about Jesus? Well, Pilate calls Jesus King of the Jews because the Sanhedrin accused Jesus of trying to lead a political rebellion. A revolution against Rome. That's something that would get Pilate's attention. When Pilate sees Jesus, I think it's with something like sarcasm that he asks the Lord, Are you the king of the Jews? It was almost comical to Pilate to think that this seemingly powerless, nondescript, bruised, and bloody Jew was capable of leading a revolution. And after all, why would the Jews be turning over to him, the king of the Jews, uh, who could lead a rebellion? Jesus didn't look like, he didn't act like any king Pilate had ever dealt with. Jesus answered, it is as you say. In other words, yes. Now we know Jesus was the rightful king. He was the promised Messiah. He had come offering the kingdom of God on earth. The Jews in authority in the first century rejected him and they thereby rejected the kingdom from being inaugurated on the earth at that time. There's a lot of confusion about the phrase, the kingdom of God. If you um, listen to a lot of Bible studies or read a lot of blogs, especially some of the younger ministers and pastors who are popular... They use this term a lot, the kingdom of God, but it's almost in a mystical sense, a mysterious sense, and they never really define exactly what they mean by it. For example, there are a lot of people, both modern and ancient, who say we're in the kingdom of God right now. And so the question is, is that true? Well, there is always a spiritual kingdom, which is simply God's rule in the hearts of believers. We would call it an invisible spiritual kingdom. In this way, we are currently in the kingdom of God. So if you're born again... We are part of the kingdom of God in that God rules in our hearts and we are fellow citizens of his kingdom. It's also true that God remains in charge of history from start to finish. He is always king above the earthly kingdoms of men and above the current rule of Satan who the Bible calls the prince and the ruler of this world. It's biblical to refer to God's overrule of history as the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God is his spiritual rule in our hearts. And it is his overall ruling of history from start to finish. But there will also be a literal kingdom of God on the earth. It was promised to the Jews in the Old Testament repeatedly. Those promises are real and literal. Jesus is going to return in his second coming. And when he does, he will establish that kingdom ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, Israel for 1,000 years over a real earth. Uh, and so that is the third sense. And so when you're reading the Bible, you need to figure out which form of the kingdom the writer is talking about. Uh, and if you're telling somebody about the kingdom of God, you need to define which form of the kingdom you're talking about. Verse three, "'And the chief priests accused him of many things, "'but he answered nothing.'" Jesus did not need to answer accusations because he had already given his testimony. The works he had performed for the last three and a half years spoke volumes. So did his teaching described as having a heavenly authority no one else on earth had ever demonstrated. His sinless private life prior to his public ministry was a solid testimony as well. And so as far as the record was concerned, no further testimony was needed on the part of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't need to answer accusations that are marshaled against him any more today than he did then. All of that testimony still stands. It's good and right for us to be ready to give an answer to those who have sincere questions. But ultimately, we want to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. The ultimate answer is to be born again. The ultimate question is, what are they doing with Jesus? Verse 4, then Pilate asked him again, saying... Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. We might be sensing some frustration in Pilate. Jesus' silence was making it hard for him to be able to release the Lord. Here was a man accused that they wanted condemned, and he was saying nothing for himself. I suggest that Jesus' silence was a kind of answer. Jesus' dignity was his answer, communicated by his keeping silent in the face of false accusations. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. This word marveled can be translated, he was full of wonder, or he was amazed. Pilate had never interrogated a prisoner like Jesus. I can't help but think that Pilate had the sense that Jesus was the one in charge, not him. There was a dignity about Jesus, as well as a mystery, and I dare say there was a veiled power about him that was a little bit spooky to Pilate. Here's what I mean. At one point during his arrest in Gethsemane, Jesus told Peter, Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Wow. You talk about the guy who can push the nuclear button. I mean, that's it. Right now I can call 12 legions of angels. One angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers while they slept one night. And he was just getting started. And so 12 legions of angels. When you command that kind of a power. I'm telling you there's a presence about you. Now Jesus wasn't going to call upon them. But he could have. Not only that. When they came to arrest him. This is maybe my favorite scene in all of the gospels. Jesus spoke. And all the soldiers and the temple guards fell backwards. They asked for Jesus. And he says I am. And they were all on the ground. It was an initial slain in the spirit event. And everybody that was slain in the spirit in the Bible, not good. But uh, anyway, and so, I mean, imagine that kind of power. There might have been as many as 600 Roman soldiers, and we don't know how many temple guards and others. And one minute they're arresting Jesus, and the next minute they're on the ground. Jesus had a power about him. It was veiled, but it could be sensed. Mark's writing leads us to ask of ourselves, do you and I marvel at his dignity? And the answer is, of course we do. Maybe not as much as we could or we should, but as believers, he is our king. We're surrendered to him. We bow before him. We see his dignity before the cross, on the cross, and certainly after the cross. Now, since that's true, let me suggest a devotional thought. In your sufferings, in your struggles, in the midst of your trials, have you ever had the sense that Jesus was silent? Have you felt as if he was not answering your questions, as if he was not responding to your cries for help? Have you felt that he wasn't explaining the lesson you were supposed to be learning, that you were just left in the dark, as it were, about what was or maybe is happening in your life right now? I would dare say some of you are in a place right now where you would describe Jesus as being silent. I know that every suffering or struggle or trial I've ever had or am having has featured my thinking that the Lord was silent and not telling me what I needed to know. Well, first of all, Jesus only seems silent if you think about it for a few minutes. In fact, he has already spoken. He's spoken well ahead of time, so you need not fret or fear or feel that way. You know probably by heart at least a few of the things that he has pre-recorded for you to listen to when you start having those feelings. I'm going to read these. They're from several different places in scripture. I'm just going to read them as if they were a continuous paragraph to give you an idea of what the Lord has already said to you. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our lord and savior jesus christ i'm going to tape that and anytime somebody tells me they're having a problem i'm just going to play that because you go from start oh this isn't a strange thing i should count it all joy this is a light affliction it's working for me an eternal weight of glory all things will work together for good god is molding me into the image of jesus and i'm going to heaven What more could Jesus say to you than that? It's tremendous. And now second, Jesus owes us no current updated personal explanation. He doesn't need to dignify us with an answer beyond what he's already said. Now, that sounds a little harsh. I don't mean it that way. It's not as if Jesus is in a huff and doesn't want to answer us. It's that he has a quiet dignity about him and that we should recognize that dignity and know that he's already given us his answer. We should respect his dignity. In fact, his silence, I hope you follow this, his silence is proof that he has given us everything we need already. He loves us too much to withhold anything we might need. Therefore, his silence establishes that we already have everything he need, that we need. Jesus doesn't come running and say, Oh, yeah, I'm so glad that you cried out to me because there's a few things I forgot to tell you. What you have in the word of God is, is a pretty good start, but here's some things you need to know these exact things that you're going through. That's not it at all. The Lord stands there with his dignity intact. And we look at him and respect him and think, thank you, Lord, for telling me what I need to know to get through this struggle. Thank you that you have empowered me, that you filled me with your spirit. And that though I can't see how, all things will work together for good. That this seems a pretty heavy affliction to me. I don't see the way out. All of those kinds of things may be true and we're human and we're, it's okay to doubt and it's okay to, to you know, feel as though the Lord isn't talking to you, but we need to come back to a walk of faith and realize that he is and he has and that all that we need for life and godliness belong to us. Let Jesus be king and know that you are his beloved subject. Walk in faith and you will exude a dignity like his. Verses 6 through 15, do you cave at the din of the crowd? Now, Pilate's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day was going to get a lot worse. He was going to get manipulated by the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, into making the mother of all political errors. Verse 6, now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. Pilate's headquarters were not in Jerusalem. He was in town because it was expected of him as the prefect during Passover when tens of thousands of Jews had made their pilgrimage to the temple. When and how this custom of releasing a prisoner developed is unknown. Mark's wording might indicate that Pilate inaugurated this custom. If he didn't inaugurate it, he was careful to observe it. Pilate's Passover pardon was going to become the most famous ever. Verse 7... And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Bar means the son of. Barabbas means the son of Abbas. Abba is a phrase that is endearing for father. And so Barabbas means son of the father. Hold on to that thought for a moment. We'll return to it. Barabbas had been involved in some notable uprising against Rome in which he and his men had committed murder it seems Barabbas was scheduled to be crucified along with his colleagues that very day his colleagues were probably the notorious two thieves whom Jesus would be crucified between Jesus is going to take Barabbas' place on the cross and be crucified between two thieves the word thieves can have a lot of different meanings and so this was was the day Barabbas and his buddies were going to die and Jesus ended up taking his place They were most likely members of what was called the Zealots. The Zealots were a movement in first century Israel which sought to incite the people of Judea to rebel against the Roman Empire and to expel it from Israel by force of arms. And so their purpose was to stir up the people, to take up arms, and to actively fight against Rome. One particularly extreme group Perhaps a subgroup of the zealots was known as the Sicari. That's the Latin name. It's Latin for dagger men. Their policy? Kill the Jews who opposed the call for war against Rome. And so you had the zealots who would come to you and say, you need to fight with us. Pick up a sword. Let's start killing Romans. But uh, the average Jew wasn't up for that. They, they felt like they could live under the Roman domination. Uh, and, and so there was that tension. But then the Zealots would report back perhaps to the Sakari and they would say, hey, Gene doesn't want to fight. And so they would say, well, then Gene's on our hit list. We're going to kill him. And the way they would do this, they were called dagger men. They would come up behind people in crowded places, the marketplace or public events, and they had these short little daggers and they would stab you multiple times and then they would walk off before anybody knew what was happening. And so this was a pretty vicious group of people. Uh, I mean, they, they, these are uh, guys that said they were patriots who we would call terrorists. Most Jewish citizens were opposed to the zealots. And they certainly opposed the dagger men who might kill them just as easily as they might kill a Roman. Pilate had brought out the very worst criminal, apparently thinking that no one in their right mind would call for his release, except that no one in that crowd had a right mind. They were unrighteous. They were far from God, thinking only of the here and now, not eternal life. You see, there's a certain weird psychology that people succumb to in mob behavior the, the you know, Mobs are scary. You don't want to be around them. Uh, and, and these guys, you know, they're, they weren't thinking about what they were doing as they start calling for Barabbas to be released. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate used this title again to kind of needle the chief priests. Little did he know how accurate he was. On paper, it seemed foolproof. For one thing, Barabbas was just as likely to kill the chief priests as he was a Roman. It was pretty clear Jesus posed no lethal threat to the chief priests. If Pilate released Jesus, he wasn't going to kill anybody. If Pilate released Barabbas, he might kill anybody. And so that's not the kind of guy you want out in public. For another thing, it is just absurd that a crowd that was accusing Jesus of the crime of rebellion would want a person convicted of leading a rebellion released to them. I mean, it's illogical and irrational. Who do you want released to you? The revolutionary. Why? Because this guy's a revolutionary. Well, one of them's a murderer. Yeah, we want this one released. It's crazy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Now clearly Pilate underestimated both the influence and the envy of the chief priest. The crowd called for Barabbas. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Pilate was in a pretty pickle. Barabbas must be released. He said, Who do you want released? And they said, Well, Barabbas. So that was done. But he still had the Jesus problem. His, his logic had not solved the Jesus problem. So they cried out again, crucify him. You've probably heard it said that the same crowd which shouted Hosanna to Jesus a few days earlier now called for his death. I have probably said that myself. As a younger man, sometimes you repeat what you've heard and you don't think about it very deeply. And it's not the end of the world, but I'm trying to amend for my past mistakes it's not the same crowd I mean think about it there were literally tens of thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem for Passover what are the odds any of the exact same people were in that much smaller crowd it's likely this crowd was especially interested in the Passover prisoner release that's what Pilate was going to be about that morning who would he release to them and so it was a crowd that was interested in that situation a different mindset than those who had been following jesus supposing he was going to announce his kingdom and so again seriously i'm only telling you this because sometimes we need to think a little bit more deeply about the word of god than we normally do and put ourselves. mark does a good job of putting ourselves into the story and so you should stop and think okay What about that crowd? I've heard it's the same crowd, but I know that there's tens of thousands of people, etc. So we want to start thinking a little bit more critically so that we don't end up making half-baked opinions about things. And so, different crowd. So next time you hear that, jump up and say, heretic! No, don't do that. Just know that uh, that person's wrong. Anyway... The chief priests were orchestrating all of this anyway, and they probably had seeded the crowd with those that were sympathetic to their cause. The priest, chief priests didn't get everything right, but they seemed to really have thought through this political situation with Pilate. And though they were the minority group in terms of power, I mean, they were at Pilate's place because they couldn't put anybody to death, they pretty easily cornered Pilate. Uh, I think they knew him a lot better than he knew himself himself. And they had him now. Pilate said to them, verse 14, What evil has he done? But they cried out, All the more, crucify him. Those are words of exasperation and desperation. Pilate had lost control. They're also great words just to remind us that Jesus was the sinless son of God who had done no evil his entire life. That he was definitely an innocent man. He was going to take the place of a guilty man. Pilate never really had control of this situation, Jesus did, but any thoughts he might have entertained about getting his way were gone. I'll just mention this, it's a whole study in itself. He was serving God's providence, though making free decisions Pilate was responsible for, God was also providing for his plan in history for Jesus to be crucified at the hands of Rome. And so, Pilate was not an automaton. He wasn't a robot. He wasn't being forced to do anything by God. He wasn't predestined to be the one that turned Jesus over. But God provided for that in this situation because God sees to it that his plan for history is going to take place. And so, we see man's free will accounted for, but God's overruling also accounted for. And so, Pilate... Pilate could have done the right thing. And then you say, well, how, how would Jesus have been crucified then? And the answer is, I don't know, but he would have been. And what I always look back to, I've used this several times, but it's so important. I want to spend a minute talking about this now that I've opened this can of worms. Back in the Old Testament, Queen Esther is in a place to save the Jews just when the decree has been issued to wipe out all the Jews. Her king husband doesn't know she's a Jew. And so her uh, uncle, Mordecai, comes to her and he says, hey, it's up to you. You're here right now at this right time in order to go before the king and save the Jewish people. And then Mordecai says something incredibly interesting. He says, and if you won't do it, God will raise up a deliverer somewhere else. And you think, wait a minute. What did he just say? So Esther, I mean, you look at Esther and you think, yeah, she's in the perfect place. But she had a freedom to choose whether or not to act. And had she said no, God still would have delivered the Jews. We don't know how, but that's because we're not God. And so Pilate is acting as a free moral agent and making decisions that he is going to be held accountable for. And God is getting his way. Verse 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd... ...released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. There's some evidence in literature that the Roman scourging was called pre-death. That's because many individuals did not survive it. The subject was whipped with leather thongs embedded with pieces of bone and shards of metal. There was no limit placed on the number of lashes that could be given... It was not uncommon for inner organs like the kidneys to be exposed after this scourging. Blood loss alone could be fatal. Shock was certain. Remember earlier I pointed out that Barabbas meant the son of the father? You might recall an exchange Jesus once had with the religious authorities. They accused him of being born from fornication, not believing in the miracle of the virgin birth. Jesus responded by saying, and I quote, "'You are of your father, the devil.'" And so Jesus said, hey, your spiritual father, the one you emulate, the person you're most like, is the devil. Now the choice of the crowd nicely demonstrates that the Jews were of their father the devil. Barabbas was a rebellious, thieving murderer. Satan is a rebellious, thieving murderer. They identified with a rebellious, thieving murderer rather than the son of the heavenly father who was full of grace and truth. They would rather have that son of the father... The devil than the Son of God. Pilate had to gratify the crowd for his own political position to remain intact. Though in power and powerful, he was pressured by the din of the crowd to deliver an innocent man, the most innocent man ever, to death. The question, do you cave at the din of the crowd, might be a rebuke if you know that you're compromising your testimony. Maybe you're here this morning and you're completely backslidden, and God has brought you here so that you can repent of your sin and uh, be restored to your walk with the lord but it's more likely a, a question that's a reminder to you that we're all under a lot of pressure as believers maybe you're not feeling it fully right now but you will or you have if a powerful roman prefect could be pressured and manipulated into delivering jesus to be crucified then little old you and me can certainly feel pressure in our walk with the lord We're pressured at home, by family, at work. We're pressured in school. We're certainly pressured out in the public. I mentioned some things that are happening just generally against Christians. Some of it is political pressure as the ungodly continue to pass laws against our freedoms. But mostly it's going to be personal pressure from the ungodly around us. One way we set ourselves up to succumb to pressure is by hesitation. Pilate hesitated to act. He took time to calculate the political consequences. In the book of Acts, the Lord wanted Peter to take the gospel to a Gentile household. This was something unheard of. For a Jew to go into a Gentile household, for Peter to go to Cornelius' house and preach the gospel, unheard of. And so the Lord gave Peter a vision, and he explained to him what was going to happen, He said, some men are going to come and knock on your door. And then he says, go to Cornelius' house, and I quote, without hesitation. Don't pray about it. Don't think about it. Don't have any hesitation. Just go. Because he who hesitates might just stay behind. He might just stay behind. And that's the thing. If something is right, why do you need to hesitate? Thinking about its consequences can only weaken you if there are consequences then you must suffer the consequences and stand strong upon the promises jesus has given you in his word and so one of the ways that we succumb to the din of the crowd is by hesitation another way is by reducing jesus to someone less than he is that's what Pilate tried to do he tried to show that jesus was no real threat because he had no real power although of course he did we do that too. We can reduce Jesus. One way we do it is by being careless in our walk or our witness. If my family or my colleagues see nothing different about me, then I've reduced God's power to transform my life to something impotent. Let's have a, for instance, let's say you come to church here and you've been a Christian for many years. And then one Sunday, a fellow worker comes in and you go up and greet them. You're excited to see them. And they say, Gene, you're here. You're a Christian since when? When? since about 1979 man no one would ever know that no one suspects that let me tell you that's not a good testimony it's not the end of the world but you do need to repent and so we sometimes reduce Jesus power by not living a Christian life even in a marginal way and so there's other ways as well Pilate finally and ultimately succumbed to fear in his case he was afraid of losing his job It may come to that for you and I. Sooner or later, the ungodly draw a line in the sand that we simply cannot cross. I don't know where that line is for you. I don't even know where it is for me, but when it comes, we need to be ready. Captured and made slaves to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Daniel's three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, settled into life in Babylon. They received new Babylonian names. Their original names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel's Babylonian name was Belteshazzar. And so they they were taken into Babylon, and immediately they were given worldly Babylonian names, and they accepted them. They went to Babylonian schools, where they were exposed to a lot of weird, ungodly information. But they studied, and they learned seems likely from clues and direct references in the Bible that all of them were made eunuchs as well and though obviously they didn't have a choice in that they went along with it but they also knew when a line had been drawn they could not cross they refused to eat the food offered to them insisting on keeping the dietary laws Jews were subject to under the law of Moses there in captivity when the food was set before them they said we can't eat bacon we're not eating that Well, you could be killed for that. Then we'll die. But we cannot eat these foods. And God honored that. Got them in a situation where they could eat their own diet and excel the other students. They refused to bow to the idol of King Nebuchadnezzar, for which they were taken prisoners and thrown alive into a burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar Builds this huge idol to himself. Out in the plains of Dura. And he says everybody has to bow down to it. And Shadrach, Meshach and the men. go say yeah no. That's a line too far. We can't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar threatens them. And threatens them. And grows angry. Throws them into the furnace. And and they say look. We're not going to bow down to your idol. God will deliver us. Or he won't. But either way. Nanny nanny. And you know the rest of the story, he throws them in, all of his guards burn up, he looks in the furnace and he sees a fourth person walking with them who is Jesus Christ with him in their trial. But the point I'm making is there were lines they couldn't cross. Daniel, later on in the Persian Empire, they passed a decree that no one can pray openly except to the king. And Daniel says, you know, I've put up with a lot, but this is something I can't i can't you know go along with and he prays openly and is thrown into the lion's den god delivers him i can't say where your line or lines will be drawn or mine but i can say that chances are in small ways or maybe large ways all of us are going to face a moment or moments in our life when there's just something that the holy spirit tells us is a line too far You know, for me, as an armchair observer of these guys, I think, oh, you should have never taken Babylonian names, blah, blah, blah. It's easy to say that when you're not in that situation. You should have never allowed them to go to public school, blah, blah, blah. Well, but they did draw lines when the Holy Spirit ministered to them. And then God ministered to them. Now, I don't want to give you any false hope either. I mean, God kept delivering these guys. Maybe you should read Hebrews 11 before you make your final decision because the chapter breaks and then there's a whole bunch of people that God says, well, you are going to burn in the fiery furnace. You are going to be cut in half. You are going to be martyred. Nevertheless, we can't hesitate to do what is right we shouldn't reduce Jesus to some powerless individual and his perfect love can cast out our fear. Maybe you're facing something today at work, at home. Maybe there's a line, you know that line, you want to cross it to keep the peace or to keep your position or whatever it is. Be emboldened, be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's not you, but it will be or it could be at some point. Jesus might even be silent on it. You know why? Because he's already told you what you need to know. You already belong to him. He is your king. He stood for you. He stood for me before Pilate. And he remained quiet in his dignity. Because he was chosen to go to the cross. To die for the sins of the world. For my sins. So that in February of 1979. I could be saved. And know that when I die. I'll be in heaven with Jesus Christ. You can know that too. Let's pray.